Hello and welcome back to the Drop Step podcast. I'm your host Jack Quantrill and today I want to deep dive into what I think is probably the most interesting situation for any team in this NBA offseason. They're a small market franchise, they've got a young elite point guard and they've got a massive decision to make in the draft. The team in question is the Charlotte Hornets. The MJ-owned Hornets have had a tough time of it in the past 30 years. Let's face it, their best days were while Michael Jordan was still playing, so it's fair to say that things have gone stale in Charlotte. After drafting the Mellow Ball in 2020 and reaching the play-in in back-to-back seasons, it looked promising for Charlotte. They had a bubbly young core, they had Lamelo, they had Miles Bridges, they had veterans like Gordon Hayward and Terry Rozier. And then last season, they decided to sack their head coach, James Borrego, who by all accounts had been doing a decent job there. They were horrific defensively, but that was perhaps more due to the personnel. You know, when you're rolling out Mason Plumlee from night to night, you can't expect top tier rim protection. But that was just the start of it. They had the Miles Bridges situation, which completely wrecked the franchise's season you know they were due to sign this guy for probably a hundred million dollars plus and a week before his free agency decision the charges come out against him he gets charged and it's just I, I don't know how if you're Mitch Kupchak you plan for that so it looked like they were heading on a downward spiral they appoint Steve Clifford after sacking James Borrego a sort of staunch defensive coach an experienced veteran of the league who had put out some pretty boring basketball lineups in the past, managing teams like the Orlando Magic and, of course, the Charlotte Hornets. And then their premier young point guard experiences two different injuries through the same season. So he misses training camp and, and starts the season late for Charlotte, I think due to an ankle injury. And then after playing 36 games for the Hornets in the 22-23 season, putting up a stat line of 23.3 points per game, 6.4 rebounds and 8.4 assists per game. His season is cut short by another ankle injury in late February. So really looked like just a lost season for the Hornets. They were overpaying some veterans like Gordon Hayward, like Terry Rozier, because they're not necessarily the most attractive destination for free agents. And Michael Jordan is rumoured to be looking to sell up and get out of the Hornets game, which might not necessarily be a bad thing. But this was one of the jobs where if you were a a GM, you're probably dreading taking over the Hornets. You don't quite know what direction to go. They don't have excess draft picks. They don't have a ton of assets they can sell on. And your franchise player, still just 21 years old, picks up two injuries in his third season and the hype isn't building. In fact, all of that sort of good league pass credit they built up with fans and pundits and journalists alike dissipates in 22-23 and they're really one of the least attractive teams to watch on a night-to-night basis. But some nights change a franchise's trajectory, potential history, future... That's the beautiful thing about the NBA. You can be going nowhere fast and suddenly you get the right to draft a transcendental talent into your team and it completely changes your culture and it sets you on a winning path. It's just 
that's the beauty of it. And on May 16th, that happened for the Hornets. They jumped from fifth in the lottery odds all the way up to second, narrowly missing out on that golden first pick. But they get number two, and that puts them in one of the most interesting positions in the NBA. So today, what I want to discuss is, especially in light of the recent Shams report, that the New Orleans Pelicans are interested in drafting Scoot Henderson. I want to really break down what they can do during this offseason, what's probably the correct course of action and what each one would look like. And at the end of the episode, I want you guys to weigh in and let me know what you'd do if you were Mitch Kupchak, Charlotte GM, and what you'd want your team to do if you're a Charlotte Hornets fan. I know there aren't that many out there. So, option one. Now, this is what we're hearing primarily from sources around the league, journalists like Kevin O'Connor and other people that the Charlotte Hornets intend to draft Brandon Miller with the number two pick in the 2023 NBA draft. Um, I don't claim to be a draft expert. I've got a real interest in it. I listen to a ton of people talk about the draft. I read what I can. I'll watch clips of players that go round, get myself familiarised with sort of the top 30 guys. But if you are looking for draft coverage, there are much better people out there than me. So my opinions on Brandon Miller are going to be lifted from people like Sam Vecini, who does draft coverage for The Athletic. He is a bit of a veteran in this space. He puts out a big ball for The Athletic once a year that's sort of a bible for many people. I'll listen to the Box and One, Kevin O'Connor, Mark Schindler. I'll read some of their Twitter draft guides, like stuff done by Draft Deeper. And uh, the stuff done on Dunked On and Dunked On Prime is pretty good as well. They've recently broken down both Brandon Miller and Scoot Henderson as prospects. So I think I'm pretty informed, but these opinions aren't necessarily my own. I'm just going to give you the gist of the players and tell you from that information what I would personally do and what the Hornets could do as well. So Miller is a six foot nine small forward coming out of Alabama. He is known for his shooting stroke. He's shown creation off the dribble. He's got a little bit of a passing feel. Not necessarily your jump out the gym athlete, but he's got great feel for the game and he looks like an NBA ready prospect. You'd expect him to shoot 40% from three, probably create his own in the mid-range, operate in the pick and roll, and really be that sort of six foot nine primary slash secondary initiator archetype that we see throughout the league today. You know, think Paul George, think Brandon Miller and Chris Middleton. They're the three comparisons that I've heard most for Miller. And on the face of it, that sounds like a fantastic idea. I think if you look at how NBA teams are built and who wins NBA championships, there is this sort of opinion that you need elite wings if you want to win in today's NBA. Look at the Raptors with Kawhi Leonard in 2019. Look at all the LeBron teams. Look at Kevin Durant on the Golden State Warriors. We essentially had at least a 10-year period, I think you probably go back even further than that, where having an elite wing was one of the major keys to winning an NBA championship. So pairing Miller with LaMelo Ball makes a lot of sense. You've got your primary star guard, you've got your wing creator, you've got a rim protector in Mark Williams that you've drafted. I think that Miles Bridges is going to come back into the fold as well. So it puts the Hornets in a pretty good stead over the next few years to form what looks like a competitive NBA team. 
they'd be young, they'd have talent, they'd have positional size. What's not to like? Well, there are a couple of concerns about Miller. Again, this isn't a true crime podcast. I'm not going to discuss what's happened with him potentially bringing a gun that was used in a shooting that led to a murder. I believe that teams think he's in pretty good stead with that. So whatever he did wrong, I'm not going to go into that today. I'm purely going to discuss basketball concerns. And in terms of the concerns that you could have about Brandon Miller, it is his upside. He is a high floor prospect. I think the people that I've heard that have evaluated him and have watched for a really long time see that he is NBA ready. He can come into the league. He can guard pretty competently, even if he's not the strongest yet. And he's going to be able to knock down shots, whether that's through catch and shoot opportunities, punishing people in mismatches where he can leverage his size or creating in the pick and roll. So that all sounds good. But there is that lack of elite athleticism there. When I listened to Dunkton, they said that he looks a little bit more like a Chris Middleton type prospect, someone that can close out a game, get to his own shot, but without that real athleticism and without truly elite shooting. He's a great shooter, but he's not elite elite. And without the playmaking of, say, a Luca or a Cade, is this a guy that's going to be a number one option on your championship team? From what I've heard, I don't think so. So my main concern is, are you just capping out the talent on the Charlotte Hornets roster? One of the things about drafting NBA-ready prospects is they immediately improve you. That sounds great, right? That's what teams want to do. They want to be getting into the playoffs every year, have the fans come for the postseason. It's all a good time. But at the end of the day, if you improve too much too soon, you cap out the amount of talent that you can get on your roster, especially as a small market team. If you're not Miami, New York, LA, Dallas, Phoenix, I mean, Dallas have never actually got anyone in free agency, but there's the tax stuff there. There's not a real avenue to you adding major talent to your team other than through trades and the draft. So if you get better in year one, year two, and then your pick is, say, a late lottery pick or you're even 15, 16, 17 in the draft, that's great short term. But if you don't believe in a Lamello Ball, Brandon Miller core winning you a championship, then you're setting yourself up for five to ten years of mediocrity. You've either got to really improve your team internally, you know, player development has got to really take off and you've got to see strides from Lamelo. Maybe Brandon Miller exceeds what we expect his potential to be and you have a top ten player in the NBA. Or maybe you pull off a trade for a third superstar. But I don't see that happening with Charlotte because they're not in control of all of their draft picks. Their first in the 24 draft is protected top 14 through 2024 and 2025 or else it will convey as a second round pick in 2026. So they don't really have the capital to go out and make that third big star trade. So my worry with drafting Miller for the Hornets is while he might be the best fit on paper, you know, there are concerns about Lamelo and Scoot that I'll get into later on. But are you just setting yourself up for... 10 years of mediocrity, is that all right for Charlotte's Hornets fans? Yeah, they've got a really, really passionate fan base down there. The college basketball scene is massive and they're they're always selling out their arena. It's not one of these teams that's sort of on the verge of relocating. 
But if I'm a Charlotte Hornets fan, I would rather we draft for talent. I would rather we try and get as many picks as possible because when you're a small market franchise, and this is one of my core NBA beliefs, if you want to win a championship, you have to be perfect. There isn't the margin for error of being the Lakers post Kobe and being terrible for a couple of years, drafting high up in the draft, and then LeBron James chooses to take his talents to LA. Or you're not the Clippers who move on from the Blake and CP3 era and almost immediately get Kawhi Leonard and Paul George through the door. So if you're Charlotte, you have to be perfect. You have to have as much talent as possible. You have to have as many assets as possible because other avenues for acquiring talent are not open to you in the same way that they are the big boys that you are going to be competing with on a yearly basis if you want to win an NBA championship. So while it's maybe likely that they draft Miller at two, I actually think it's speculation similar to what we saw the Orlando Magic do with the number one pick last year. It was all Jabari Smith, Jabari Smith, Jabari Smith, a smidge of Chet Holmgren thrown in until 20 minutes before the draft and we're drafting Paolo Banquero. He didn't even work out there, but they knew it all along. He was their guy. So just remember, at this stage in the year, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors. If you look at the odds, they're more likely to draft Brandon Miller. But I wouldn't be so sure. And if I was in charge of the Charlotte Hornets, that's not what I'm doing. Which brings us on to our second option, which is drafting a generational point guard at number two. And that's Scoot Henderson. Now, Scoot is 19 years old. He's two years younger than Brandon Miller and he's been showcasing his talents with the G League Ignite for the past two seasons playing at 17 years old the year before last in the G League up against grown men and impressing scouts and teams from around the globe and I think at the start of the year he was the consensus number two pick and that sort of shifted because he's perhaps eased off this year there have been a couple of nagging injuries and we didn't quite see as much as we expected from Scoot this G League season. Kind of similar to Paolo Banquero. He was mocked as number one before his draft cycle started, him or Chet. And then he has a rather disappointing year for Duke and it's all thrown into question. Other players emerge throughout the year. They skyrocket up the rankings. But I think Scoot, like Paolo, perhaps has been saving himself a little bit. He's a real competitor, but... For a player in his position, it's vital not to get injured, not to burn yourself out. So I think that Scoot is a generational point guard based off the clips that I've seen, based off some of the stuff that I've read and what I've listened to. And if you don't know about Henderson, I mentioned a ton of people that you can go and read. But here's my little summation of why you should be excited about Scoot, particularly if you're a Charlotte fan. First off, the 19-year-old already has a grown man's body. If you've looked at Instagram or Twitter in the last few weeks and you've been checking out NBA workouts, you might have seen some pictures going around of Scoot where he looks more like a linebacker than a point guard. But at six foot two, he's blessed with elite athleticism. He can play above the rim. He has an explosive first step. And one of the fun quirks that I like about Scoot is he's got the most ridiculous looking hands I've ever seen. He's got Kawhi mitts, MJ hands. Maybe you think I'm going on about them, but pull up a clip of Scoot and you'll notice if you haven't already. He's six foot two, but I'm confident he can pump the ball one-handed in the NBA. And I think he's going to look 
like Andrew Garfield in that first Amazing Spider-Man film, the first time he sees a below-average rim protector in the NBA. If you're a Rockets fan, beware. I see this man posterizing Alper and Shengun. I'm really rubbing salt in the wounds that you drop from two to four in the NBA draft lottery. But it's not just the insane physical tools. Once you get past the comical hands, I seriously think you might have to custom order gloves. Watching tape, you notice he's already got a super advanced feel for the game. Scoot is comfortable operating in ball screens. He's got that little Chris Paul move where he gets the defender on his hip, in his bag, already, And he's not flustered playing against grown men in the G League. He finds space in the mid-range and can create his own shot at multiple levels. Sam Vecini, who I mentioned before, his podcast is gospel for me when it comes to draft content, had him evaluated as the best guard prospect he's seen while covering the draft. That's a more rounded pre-NBA player than Cade Cunningham, LaMelo Ball, Ja Morant, Trey Young, Darius Garland, Kyrie Irving. So why would you split up a generational prospect from LaMelo? Like I've said, to win a championship, everything needs to break right for a franchise. It's not enough to just have the talent. Injury curtails championship runs before they even get started. Vaccine mandates break up super teams. Coaching can prevent a team from picking up a title. A single shot can deny all-time greats from ever picking up a ring. And you might get bored of this, but if you're a small franchise, like the Charlotte Hornets, you have a lower margin for error than pretty much any other team in the NBA. So... I don't think that at number two in the draft, that opportunity does not roll around a lot. I think they last had number two in 2012 when they drafted Michael Kidd Gilchrist at number two when Damian Lillard was still on the board, Bradley Beal was still on the board because he fit and because he had great mentality. I don't think you can afford to be drafting for fit and the guy that's going to slot in straight away. The fit with Scoot and Lamelo isn't necessarily the cleanest. I've got a big section coming up on LaMelo and why I think he's such a valuable player in the NBA, but we haven't necessarily seen two ball-dominant guards go and pick up an NBA title. There's concerns with Scoot about his three-point shooting. I believe he shot below 30% from three this year in the league, but he's got great touch. He shoots well from the mid-range. His free throw percentage is good. I don't think it's a long-term concern, but when it comes to maximising what you're getting out of your star players, there's an argument that there's a little bit of redundancy having two point guards playing next to each other. The other thing is, Scoot isn't a massive player. He's six foot two with a six foot nine wingspan. He's built like a linebacker, but there's only so many defensively weak players you can have on your team. And at the moment, while Lamelo has the frame to be a really imposing defensive player and he plays the passing lanes well and he's got big arms and he reads the game he's not a positive player on the defensive end so you're essentially creating a couple of problems for yourself team-wise when it comes to point of attack defense who's picking up the premium perimeter threats that you're going to be facing in the playoffs so there are concerns about drafting scoop there and it is going to be a more difficult fit than if you go for the easy option in brandon miller but teams have to take chances According to Charles Barkley back in 2013-14, a jump shooting team could never win the NBA title until the Golden State Warriors went and did it four times in the last 10 years. Back in the 80s and the 90s, a team led by two perimeter players 
couldn't win the NBA title. And then Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen are the two best players on that Bulls team, never having a premier big man, despite playing in an era with David Robinson, Patrick Ewing, Hakeem Olajuwon, Shaquille O'Neal. Point guards had to be small until Magic Johnson came into the league. All these NBA rules and tenets and laws that we live by are there to be broken. They're only laws until they're disproven. And at some stage, a team is going to win an NBA championship led by two guards. It's going to happen. And I think it's up to the Charlotte Hornets front office to be brave enough to take that chance, take the talent, trust your coaching, trust your players to adapt and make it work because that is the talent play. And when you're a small NBA franchise, you have to prioritise talent above everything else. They are our two drafting options. I don't think they reach for Amen Thompson. That would be ridiculous at two. There hasn't been too much talk of a team trading up or trading down. I can see maybe the Houston Rockets being interested in doing something like that. The Orlando Magic, maybe the Indiana Pacers if they want to grab Brandon Miller, but that's more for the Portland Trailblazers. So option three is something that we mentioned at the top of the podcast, the report discussed by Sham Sharania, and that is trading that number two pick outright, trading out of the draft and bringing in a star player now. And the team that we're going to discuss in terms of a trade, the team that was linked by Shams, is the New Orleans Pelicans. How ironic would it be if the Pelicans and the Hornets come together and make the biggest trade of draft night despite their history? So in this stage of the podcast, what we're going to do is break down probably the three trade packages that New Orleans could send Charlotte, evaluate what's going to be the most preferable, what's the most likely and what you might accept if you're the Charlotte Hornets GM. So our first trade is a simple swap. The number two pick for Carolina native, 25-year-old Brandon Ingram. Um, this would be an insane trade. We don't often see draft night trades quite of this nature. I think the closest to it, again, would be Jeff Green, the number five pick in the 2000 and draft was sent to Seattle slash OKC for Ray Allen. Um, that's that's probably the closest we get to that. But even then, Ray was 30, Ingram is 25 and still on the up. In fact, I've got massive hopes for Brandon Ingram going forward. I think we've seen some 2016 players show out in the last season. You know, Pascal put up fantastic numbers for Toronto. Jalen Brown, despite not having a left hand, had an epic season for the Celtics and earned himself a probable Supermax extension. Demantis Sabonis demonstrated his value in Sacramento. Uh, Jamal Murray, obviously, just won himself an NBA championship. But I sincerely think that when the dust settles, Brandon Ingram is going to be the best player from that 2016 class. So why would the Pelicans even consider sending Brandon Ingram to the Hornets? When you've got a 25-year-old potential star, you don't often trade them in the NBA. But... Uh, they sort of have an embarrassment of riches, which in turn is going to lead to an embarrassingly high cap number over the next few years. They're dangerously close to the tax line already. They've got Ingram on $33.8 million for the next year. They've got that CJ contract where he's on about $30 million a year. Zion's extension kicks in this year, another 30. And then they've got 
Jonas on 15. Uh, Josh Richardson, they could choose to bring back. He was around the 12 figure last year. And they're also going to have to deal with extensions coming up. Trey Murphy is going to be eligible in the next year or two. And he's earned himself probably somewhere in the region of $25 million a year. Herb Jones could be extended even sooner. He's something in between a 10 to $20 million player. So as much as this is about acquiring that generational point guard talent that we've discussed... It's also about cleaning the cap for the Pelicans. And should the Hornets take advantage of that? Well, let's just go through the fit of Ingram on the current Hornets roster. I think he probably comes in and is immediately their best player. In fact, if you want to hear more about that in my next podcast, I'm going to be breaking down guys I think will make All-NBA for the first time next year. And Brandon Ingram is my choice at the small forward spot. I know they're not positional anymore, but I'm going to do a big breakdown on his game. The numbers that we saw him post, post All-Star break, and just some of the quirks that really separate him from some of the other elite wings in the league today. But Ingram comes in and he is the primary scoring option for the Hornets. He loves to operate at the nail in the mid-range. He can operate out of the pick and roll in isolation. He never looks rushed when you're watching him. And when you combine the fact that he's six foot seven and has a seven foot three wingspan, he's one of these players that's not necessarily the most efficient. I think he shot about 46% from long two last year, but his scoring is robust. At the end of the day, it's really hard to block someone who's got a seven foot three wingspan if they're pulling up from 16 to 10 feet. So that means that in the playoffs, you have a go-to guy who can generate good offense. And that's a real asset for a team like Charlotte, who while they have an elite playmaking talent like LaMelo, they don't necessarily have that go-to scorer yet. And while Ingram is a great scorer, that's not the only part of his game. What actually has really impressed me is his playmaking talent. If you look at the stats, he averaged about 25, 5 and 6 last year. So 6 assists per game ranks him pretty damn highly on the small forward chart. And that puts him in the company of the likes of Shea, Kyrie, Devin Booker, Giannis, Pascal Siakam, Jalen Brunson, De'Aaron Fox. All great creators in the league. But if you look at his last 15 games of the season, that number jumps to 8.1, which sandwiches him nicely in between Chris Paul, Demantis Sabonis, Drew Holiday and Luca. You know, he's ahead of the likes of LeBron James there, basically in the top 10 in the league for assists. So something really unlocked in that second half of the season, particularly when they were closing down the stretch. And I think he could be utilised in a similar way in Charlotte. I think with the success of Nikola Jokic in this year's playoffs, Bam Adebayo and you know, Sabonis in the regular season, we're going to see more teams try and operate from the nail using a handoff hub, using a guy that sort of parks himself in the middle of the floor and is able to playmake. And Brandon Ingram has the potential to do that. If you watch his highlights, he is someone that likes to probably primarily score from the nail, but he spots a number of flashy passes out to the corners. He throws no-look skip passes with either hand. He's got real playmaking talent. He can find high-value plays, players cut into the rim. And I think this is going to be a reoccurring trend in the NBA next year when 
the success of Nikola Jokic has been emphasised so much by his championship run. We're going to see more teams not just try and bomb away from three, but try and cut, integrate movement into their sets and generate more high opportunity looks at the basket. And Ingram is someone that can do that for the Hornets. And then when you think about having him paired with Lamelo, I think that's a perfect, perfect situation. So Lamelo ranked in the top 10 last year for points per possession out of handoff situations. He takes top five most threes in the league per game and he's really comfortable operating both on and off ball. He's actually one of the more unselfish potential superstars in the league. Ball comes up with 43.3% of his team's assists when he's on the floor and he profiles similarly to Tyrese Halliburton in his time per touch ratio. So Halley is currently at 4.7 seconds per touch, while Lamelo is at 4.9. The likes of Luka Doncic and Trey Young have a touch time of 6 seconds plus. This goes to show that Lamelo isn't a pound the ball into the ground at the top of the key type player, and he'd operate really well with a star that has playmaking talent and perhaps likes to have the ball in his hands a little bit more, like a Brandon Ingram. You know, you're getting the most out of ball here and that he's still going to be your primary driver in transition. He's going to be able to get to the basket with his elite athleticism. He's providing you spacing from three. He's hitting the likes of Miles Bridges and Mark Williams for lobs, operating out of the pick and roll and has Brandon Ingram that he can link up with and probably really develop a two man game with. I think while Ingram doesn't quite have the size of a Jokic, you can see him operating in that mid-range and Lamelo dancing on the perimeter, using Ingram's size and waiting for handoffs to generate his own open looks and get shots from three, get into the paint a little bit more easily because that's something that Ball has struggled with in recent years. So in terms of an offensive fit, Ingram makes total sense. He's sort of the top end outcome of what we think Brandon Miller might be so this is a move that the Hornets make if they sense that their fans are a little bit sick of watching them be in the doldrums of the NBA I think this makes them an exciting team they still have young assets like a Mark Williams like you know James Bootnight Bryce McGowan's and maybe that superstar pairing of Ingram and Lamelo can elevate them into true contention because, like I said, I think they have really complementary games on the offensive side of the floor. And having your two primary creators both be six foot seven with long wingspans, while there might be concerns about Lamelo defensively at the moment, as he progresses in his career, he's got the frame to develop on that end. And that could make them a pretty flexible playoff roster who has an outside chance at winning in the playoffs. Option number two, the wildcard option. This would be crazy. This would break NBA Twitter. But if New Orleans were up for sending Zion Williamson straight for the number two pick, that's something that works as well. Yes, it's crazy. You're giving up on a guy that was meant to take over the league in 2019. But we've seen that he has issues in New Orleans. We've seen that he has issues in his love life. He has some issues in terms of his weight and injuries. So maybe they cash out and they try and get a culture-setting star that Scoot can be. He's renowned for being a leader even at 19 years old. And maybe that caps your potential because Zion definitely has more upside than Scoot. 
but it also raises your floor and again it helps New Orleans get out of that tax situation that they're facing because holding on to a rookie scale contract is vital in this new NBA especially with the new CBA. So what do we think of Zion on the Hornets? You instantly become the TikTok team of the generation. Zion and Lamelo are going to get the most views from fans under the age of 16, 18. They're going to skyrocket up the league pass rankings for many people but this is the riskiest play you can make as the Hornets. We don't know if Zion's going to be happy in Charlotte. I'm sure they'd need some sort of promise from him and his camp that he'd be happy to go there before executing a trade and we don't know if he's going to be healthy. If he is then this is a way to secure enough talent to compete for a championship. Zion and Lamelo can be Gen Z's version of Nash and Amari, except your best player is going to be that big man who not only can catch lobs and post up, operate near the basket and finish hyper-efficiently as we've seen that he can do when he's healthy, but this is another player that loves to have the ball in his hands. We saw towards the end of, of Stan Van Gundy's reign in New Orleans, them experiment with Point Zion, and he's another player that grew up as a point guard and experienced a massive body change in his sort of late teen years. That means he has the ball skills to operate in the pick and roll, to play make for others. And I see him being a great primary option for a championship team in the years to come. And perhaps even right now, he is one of the 10 best players in the league when he's healthy. But that's the question. Is he going to be healthy? Zion Williamson is about to start his max extension in the league and he's played 114 games in his NBA career. That is quite frankly insane. If you're Charlotte and you're a small market, is it worth betting on Zion's health, on betting that he's going to be happy or is it worth sticking with that number two pick with a leader and someone that looks like they're going to be a generational talent in Scoot? I really don't know. This is why I'm not a GM yet. Anyway, maybe I'll figure it out over the years to come. But I can't help but feeling if you can get Zion Williamson and you're one of the smallest franchises in the NBA, that's not just going to transform your franchise on the court. It's going to transform them off the court as well. There's a way to get out of being a small franchise and that is acquiring talent, acquiring stars and becoming an attractive place for players to come and play. The Clippers were never really that big of an attraction. You know, in the Kobe years, they really remained in the shadow of the Lakers and didn't have too much luck in free agency. I think they got Baron Davis one year and then Elton Brand left them for the 76ers at the same time. But there is a way out of that small franchise setup. Maybe you're not a primary destination, but this is the kind of move that can get your team a massive injection into the fan base in terms of money, in terms of a TV deal, in terms of new fans, fans for generations, and it can also potentially lead to a championship. Like I said, they have enough talent. Zion fits in brilliantly on that roster and he fits in brilliantly next to Lamelo. So do they have the balls to make a trade like that? I don't know. The third option would be some form of the excess picks that New Orleans have, as well as one of their young role players. 
probably Trey Murphy in this instance. I love Trey Murphy. He would be a breakout candidate if I didn't think he was already too on the radar. He was the first guy in NBA history to shoot 60% from two, 40% from three, and 90% from the free throw line. In NBA history, that's insane. And I only think he's going to get better as the years go on. And then you could also get a ton of draft picks so that you can build around a core of Lamelo, Trey, Mark Williams and Miles Bridges if they choose to bring him back. But I think it's really hard to stomach for the Charlotte fan base if they have a chance to draft a transformational player at two and they turn it down for what I think is a really good young player and might be the smart move asset-wise, but I've listened to enough people say that you do this asset collection to give you the chance to draft a Scoot Henderson or a Victor Wembanyama. So it would potentially be crazy to move him for someone that isn't quite a star player yet in the league. So they are our New Orleans trade options. I've got one final suggestion for you. And if you're a Charlotte Hornets fan, this was an unthinkable take six months ago. But you might have heard whisperings on the Bill Simmons podcast that this could be a route that they choose to go. What if you stick with the number two pick? You draft Scoot Henderson and then you trade LaMelo Ball. I know, it's insane. You have your star of the franchise. He's a young point guard. He's still on his rookie deal. Like I've said a few times in this podcast, these deals don't get done. But I'm going to come back to that core principle that I've stated through the podcast. If you're a small NBA team, your margin for error is zero. Your room for sentiment is zero. If you want to win an NBA championship, you need to make some really tough decisions. And I genuinely think there is a world where trading LaMelo Ball makes sense for Charlotte because you're getting a generational point guard in Scoot. We've discussed some of the potential fit issues that they could have if they pair Scoot and LaMelo together. And you might be thinking, well, if they draft Scoot and there's fit issues, why not trade one of them down the line? Well, this is where I think it gets interesting. Lamelo is still on his rookie contract. It's much easier to trade him. We're going into a new CBA. He's going to be a max player. His trade value might drop if you're trading for him on a max contract and you've got to include a ton of salary. Whereas I think you can probably maximise his value moving him this offseason while a team has a chance to ingratiate him into the team, evaluate his talent and then offer him that max deal. So what I'm going to do is go through three final trade ideas for the Charlotte Hornets, which involve LaMelo going to different situations. Uh, I actually wrote these a little while ago. I had the idea that Charlotte, if they got the chance to draft Scoot, could potentially move off of LaMelo. So team one, a team that would really have a need for him, but I don't think it's going to happen. Ironically, it is the New Orleans Pelicans. I had them sending... Trey Murphy and or Dyson Daniels and pretty much all of their draft capital. So you give up the pick this year, which I believe is at 14. You give up the future Lakers picks, the Milwaukee picks, and then you also move some of your future draft picks, probably up until about 2025. So it's a massive haul for Charlotte. It gives them a young player in Trey that they can build around and is still on a rookie contract. It gives them a ton of future chances to draft big with 
picks that could be really valuable in the future. It keeps them bad for next year, which means they can draft high again. And it gives them a completely clean cap sheet. This basically sets their rebuild back a year or two. But I think it puts them in a healthier position because your star is on the first year of his rookie contract. By the time you want to compete, you're going to be off the deals of the likes of Gordon Hayward and Terry Rozier. You're going to have a ton of excess draft picks that you can either use to acquire talent through the draft or you can make a big trade like we discussed at the top of the podcast. That's not an option for Charlotte at the moment unless they use that number two pick. So that's one potential route they can go down. And just because we've discussed Zion and Ingram so much, I'm not going to discuss the fit too much. Obviously, Lamelo is a complimentary star to both. And I think as a big three, they've worked brilliantly. You have Ingram at the nail. You have two ball handlers in Zion and Lamelo, one spacing from three, one providing you elite rim pressure and points in the paint. It'd just be beautiful. And then you could slot in the likes of Herb Jones to provide some defensive solidity and you just need a, a switchy centre. And you know your team would be six foot seven plus. You can probably have anyone guard one through four. And it sets you up to be a massively tough out through the playoffs. It allows a big three to grow for a decade plus, basically. If you look at Lamelo being 21, Zion being 22 and Ingram being 25, that could be a big three that stays together for six, seven, eight years and really has a long championship window. Once the two younger stars fully mature and get themselves healthy and get themselves playing. The second team that I thought was really interesting was the Toronto Raptors. So this would be a three-team deal. Timeline-wise, you're going to be looking to move Pascal Siakam for a picks-based package, and you just move those picks to Charlotte and basically say, right, our young core going forward is going to be Scotty Barnes, LaMelo Ball, OG Ananobi and whoever we pick up in either this year's draft or through free agency because it cleans your cap sheet as well. It gets you a big three. It allows you to extend OG for $30 million and he can get a slightly bigger role in the offense as he's been requesting. And again, it's just a fit thing. I think that LaMelo would be not only a great fit in Toronto, but they need someone that plays with his style. So Ball would juice transition for the Raptors. They'd be one of the fastest teams in the league, having both OG and Scotty paired with Lamelo. So that's two transition partners that can get up the floor quickly. You've got two playmakers in there in Barnes and Ball that can push the pace. And you've got a lot of steals that are going to be generated by all that wingspan and all of that feel in the passing lanes. And then if you truly believe in Scotty Barnes as a number one option... The star that you need to pair him with is someone that's exceptional from shooting from three. And Ball is that. Ball can shoot not only off of handoffs, where, as we said, he's top 10 in the league on points per possession, but he takes a ridiculous amount of off-the-dribble threes and knocks them down at about 37%. He spaces out to 30 feet. He can generate them in isolation, in pick and roll, and that would just open up the court for Scotty in a way that he hasn't really experienced this year. I think that he showed real progression towards the back end of the year, even though Jakob Pertl came in and sort of clogged up the paint even further. But Barnes doesn't need to be playing next to a Pascal Siakam, who, while he's a wonderful player, likes to operate in similar spaces that you can see Scotty playmaking from. 
and they only really had Gary Trent and Fred Van Vliet as the two spacers on the team. And Fred was woeful from three in the first two thirds of the season. So he had a tough year, but I think next to a player like Ball, you were just locking in 10 years plus of at least playoff contention. And then you trust the GM like Masai to put together a championship roster around a young core that really complements each other. So that was my second idea. And then my third and final idea, a team that you won't have heard linked to ball whatsoever. And you might think this is a weird fit because they've already got a premium point guard. But I would love to see Lamelo Ball on the Knicks. The Knicks have been perennial star hunters since Carmelo left. They're a big market. They have a surplus of picks. Why can't they trade for Lamelo? The package I've got them sending is Barrett and Fournier in exchange for Ball, Hayward and a ton of draft capital. You could even throw in a Quentin Grimes or an Emmanuel Quickly, although I quite like to keep him because then you have three incredibly high level guards going forward as the Knicks that can offer you spacing from three and shot creation. Anyway, let's say the Knicks send the Dallas first that's going to carry over to 2024 the Wizards first, uh, an unprotected pick in 25, a swap in 26, and an unprotected in 27. This is another package that just gives Charlotte a ton of room for error. It gives them a surplus of draft picks so they can build out a roster. It lets them buy low on another young guy that is a wing, similar to the player that they're looking to draft in Brandon Miller in RJ Barrett, who is actually a similar age to Miller. He's 23 and he already has four years of NBA experience. He's tied down to a fairly reasonable contract, owed $107 million over the next four years. And while I know that he can be a little bit of a punching bag, I think that Barrett has all the tools to be a really high level producer in the NBA going forward. I think we saw that he has some robust scoring skills in the playoffs. Uh, Miami kind of broke him towards the end of the series, but in the first three to four games of that, he was attacking the rim, getting to the rim, generating his own shot and scoring 20 points per game on reasonable efficiency and also getting himself to the line. And once Barrett makes that transition and gets more aggressive, getting himself to the basket, you have a six foot six wing who's a really, really solid defender who can generate shots for himself, who can score at all three levels and he's on a reasonable contract. These guys, look at DeAndre Hunter, for example. He's owed 90 million over the course of the next four years. And he's a far more limited player than RJ Barrett. I think that this is a cold move from the Hornets. It's one that's hard to sell to the fans, but it's an upside play for a young wing that has the chance to develop into a high level playoff player and it secures you a ton of draft picks moving forward and just, again, allows you to shape the team with a little bit more margin for error. And in my opinion, puts you in a better position to win long term in the NBA. And then we come to Lamelo's fit on the Knicks. So like I said, it's a little bit of a weird fit considering that they've had Jalen Brunson this year and he's been incredible for them. Jalen Brunson is a fantastic player and he had a brilliant playoffs, but what he's not fantastic at is playmaking. He is a scorer, he's an ISO scorer, and it's just deceptive because he's six foot tall, 
He's good with the ball in his hands, but he's not the kind of guy that is going to generate for his teammates. And that's evidenced by the fact that the Knicks finished 27th in assists this year and Brunson was responsible for about five and a half per game. If Lamelo were to come in, defensively, he plays the two. He's six foot seven. He's got the size to play there. And like we said for New Orleans and like we said for Toronto, he's juicing their transition game. He's opening up Mitchell Robinson as an offensive threat with being able to throw the lob in a way that Brunson doesn't necessarily. He adds a massive amount of three-point shooting. The Knicks relied on Julius Randle for volume three-point shooting this year. And I think he did a really serviceable job for them. But Lamelo offers that at a different level. This is a guy, like we said, that's taking about 12 threes per game and knocking down 39% of them. So ball comes in and he juices the Knicks offense to another level. They're now an elite transition threat. They've got a bit more ball move with Lamelo being a player that likes to get his teammates involved. And you're still utilizing Jalen Brunson. What we saw from Brunson in his time at Dallas is that he's incredibly effective at attacking advantages that are created for him. So instead of asking him for 48 minutes per game to just isolate, 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 create tough shots and hit them, hit the floaters, hit the small mid-range shots. You're just making his life easier and you're still going to have that option to go to him in crunch time to generate isolation offense and to run the second unit. So I think for the Knicks, this is the star that they should target. They've been linked to the likes of Carl Anthony Towns over the years, Zion, KD and Kyrie back in 2019. But Ball is a player that is going to enhance their chances to win now and put them in good stead to be a contender at the top of the East for the next decade. So yeah, as a fan, that's the trade I want to see. I do want Lamelo in the bright lights in NYC. I want New York to have a true star and I want him to blossom on the biggest stage. So we've gone through four options. We've gone through drafting Brandon Miller, drafting Scoot Henderson, trading the pit to New Orleans for one of three packages or doing the unthinkable and trading Lamelo Ball. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. I think we've got into some really fun ideas and I hope that what you take away isn't the outlandish trade suggestions, but the idea that if you're a small market, you have to be cold. You can't be sentimental. The idea is acquire the talent and operate better and smarter than the bigger teams out there because that is the only way that you're going to win an NBA championship. I hope that we don't see Charlotte draft Brandon Miller. I think that would be a real disappointment and I think that that caps their ceiling long term. And I think the fans of Charlotte deserve to see a championship caliber team. They're loyal, they're massive basketball heads out there and it's just been a long time coming. So let me know what you do if you're the GM of the Charlotte Hornets coming up. We're going to find out what they do in 10 days or so. I think the draft is next Thursday. So get ready for that and I hope you join me again for our next episode that is going to be exploring potential first time all NBA selections for next year and five low caliber breakout guys that I think you should keep an eye on if only to impress your friends when you're talking about the league at the start of the season and suddenly one of them is going off in a way that no one saw it coming thanks for listening to the drop step podcast I've been your host, Jack Quantrill. I hope you enjoyed the NBA Finals. 
and I hope you're ready for what promises to be one of the craziest off-seasons in NBA history.